you today? Who, 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 what, who do you belong to? Who, what's your identity? What makes up who you are today? Think about that because there is a lot of identity theft going on out there. There's a lot of theft happening to people's souls, their minds, their personalities. They're pretending to be something that they're not. And it, it could be said like this. We are not what we are. We are not what we think we are. We are what we think other people think we are. So many times our identity is wrapped up in somebody else. What they perceive us to be, what we've heard them say about us, what we think about, whether you think about what they think about us, and we get lost into that. But who am I? Really, we have to get down to that. Who am I in light of the great I am and who he says I am? Because that is the number one issue. Who I am determines how I live. Now that is very important. Who I am determines how I live. That speaks of a relationship. Some people get it reversed. They say not how I, it's not how I live determines who I am. So if I live a certain way there, therefore I must be okay with God. I come to church. I do this. I do that. I, I keep the Ten Commandments. What, whatever you make your laundry list of things that you've got to do to achieve a certain sainthood. And that's okay. Who you are. No, no, no. Who I am. It's who I am because the great I am says I am. I am this. I am, I am who he says and declares that I, that I am. We're, we've been studying through Romans for several weeks now for, and it's been like climbing a mountain and it truly has been for me. I don't know about for you. It's been very hard climb and, and I pray it's been rewarding climb as it has been for me. As hard as it has been, it has been rewarding. I even mentioned it's, it's not like walking through a meadow and you just kind of walk by and count daisies and count the petals on the flowers. It's not that. Those message series are out. Out there, okay? We can talk about rainbows and sunshine some other day. This is not that series of messages. This is a little deeper than that. This requires more of us. This is like climbing up Mount Everest uh, here. And so in that climb of climbing up Mount Everest, we have gone from the pit of who we are, and we need to understand that because to understand that is the basis on where we can understand who I am today in Christ and how Christ has made me something that this world doesn't say that I am, but God says that I am. I got a lot of I am's and a lot of who says and whatever. Hopefully today, as we get in Romans 8, so be opening your Bibles to Romans 8. We'll be there in a moment. Uh, it's kind of the, the summit. We've kind of reached the summit where not only is there 16 chapters and we're halfway through after, after this, actually we're going to spend a couple of weeks in Romans 8, but we'll kind of have reached the summit and we'll start our way down. Now I'll tell you right now, it's not all downhill is overrated. Okay. Uh, because when we're going to go from chapter 8 into chapter 9, 10, and 11, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be heavy. It's dense. But I can tell you this from Lori and I's climb up Mount Kilimanjaro, it was actually harder to climb down the mountain than it was to climb up the mountain. It was just incredibly difficult on the body. But Romans 8 is kind of when we've climbed out of the pit of despair, out of the brokenness of who we are, and we've climbed up. And we're now able to see vistas and angles and glaciers and, and, and beauty that, that maybe we wouldn't be able to see outside of this world. Maybe we wouldn't be able to see uh, had we not climbed up to chapter 8. John Stott says it like this, chapter 8 is the best known and the best love chapter in the Bible. Think about that. The best known and the best loved chapter in the Bible. Now, there was 21 uh, leading Bible teachers that were asked a question. 
They were asked a question, if you were, if you were stranded on an island, if you were, if you were alone, if you could only have one chapter of the Bible. Now, get the, get the full impact of this. There's over 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Of all the chapters in the Bible, which would be the one chapter, if you could only have one chapter that you would want to have on that island by yourself? Of Out of all of those 1,000, this may not be a, lar- a large number to you, but 33% of them singled it down to Romans chapter 8. Seven of the 21 leading Bible teachers in our nation said that they would take Romans chapter 8 to this alone place because there is so much truth and there's so much uh, inspiration and there's so much victory in this one chapter that you could not live alone without it. When you think about climbing up that mountain, when we were climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro, they told us that we would climb through five different ecosystems. We woke up in the morning and we were in a savanna tropical climate. We started in a rainforest. We climbed up to the, the lower alpine, to the upper alpine, to the glacier region. And we just kept climbing all the way up till we saw this beautiful, beautiful scenery of glaciers and walking among the clouds. And just as you imagine that, and you imagine that climb up, imagine where we're at today. We're in Romans chapter 8. We're at the top of the mountain. We're looking out. We can see things that we wouldn't have been able to see had we not climbed up. But first of all, we had to start at the bottom. We had to start at the bottom. Let's talk about the ecosystems that we have have climbed through over the past several weeks since the middle of February. If you're just now joining us or just for a quick review. One is we were in the ecosystem of I'm a mess. All right. Can you say that with me? I am a mess. All right, good. If we all can say that and embrace that, then we're all at, at the beginning footings of the mountains where we can start climbing. And I can tell you right now, one of the reasons I hesitated about preaching through Romans is I knew that for three chapters, we're going to have to deal with the messy stinkiness of who we are. The problem is a lot of people don't want to go there. They don't want to talk about this. This is negative talk and negative vibes and negative energy. But the reality is that sometimes you have to deal with the mess before you can ever appreciate the mosaic. Before you can ever deal with the beauty and see, and see the potential behind what God, you've got to first go in and you've got to unpack some stuff. And you've got to say, yes, I'm a mess. That is who I am. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, here's just a sampling of the mess that we have found ourselves in, that we wake up each morning in if we're not careful. None is righteous, not even one. So that includes every one of us. That's why I could say, hey, I'm a mess. You're a mess. We're all a mess. We're all a mess together. And the fact is that it is true. There's not a single person, not Mother Teresa, not Billy Graham, not, not, uh, uh, not, Bahu- not Buddha, not, not uh, Muhammad, nobody is perfect. None is righteous, not a single person. And so if we can realize that that is the basis on which we are building, all have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Boy, what a nice thought that is. They they use their tongues to deceive. Have Have you ever dealt with children who lie? Did you train them to lie or did they just lie and you have to untrain them from lying? You get the point that we're all growing up in this world as a mess. Embrace the mess. The second ecosystem that we climbed through was I am made right. Not I make myself right, but I am made right. Right. 
And for a number of chapters, again, from chapter 3 to chapter 5, he dealt with the whole word justification, that he, Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross makes us right. I don't do it. It's not what I did. It's not what I do. It's what Jesus did. That's what makes me right. It's exactly what Abraham. Abraham was a, was a patriarch of the faith for Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. And yet even Abraham was a person who was a mess, who had sin in his life, who had separation from God. He had to deal with that whole thing himself. And yet it says in Romans chapter 4, it says that he, when he believed... It was counted to him, put on his record, on his account, in the account of heaven, it was accounted to him as righteousness. He was made righteous not for what he did, not because he was a great leader, not because he left the land of Ur and went to a foreign land, not because he obeyed God. He was made righteous because he believed. He entered into this belief relationship with God. The third ecosystem that we've climbed through, and we're going to finish it up in the next couple of weeks, is I am being made whole. It's God's redemptive work of making us that beautiful mosaic. And sometimes, again, you've got to shave off some rough edges. You've got to fit it in. Sometimes you force fit it. And God has been force fitting and working on us, working his beauty in us all the way through. And if you realize, if you go back to chapter 7 last week, you kind of even hear in, in some of the things that Paul was saying in chapter 7, where he mentions, if you go back there to verse 24, he said, uh, He said, wretched man that I am, who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, what a negative statement. Wretched man that I am. But he had to embrace his mess. If you remember, we talked about last week, he didn't even understand his own mess and how he got himself there. Well, he had to embrace the fact that he was a wretched, broken, messed up man carrying around through life a body of death. But who's going to save him? The very next word, say it with me out loud. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the artist that steps on the scene that puts the pieces back together again. When you read chapter 7 again, just in review, you'll find that a number of times, in fact, many times, 31 different times does he, does he record in there the word law. The law was that standard that it had to live up to. 31 times he records in chapter 7, law, 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 living up to the law, living up to the law. And every single time he'd fall short. Every single time he would fall short. Now, chapter 8, the word changes. goes from law to spirit. 21 different times he uses the word spirit. We're going to find from chapter 7 to chapter 8 that the secret sauce, the secret answer is not Paul living up to the law. Paul being good enough, grinding it out long enough, figuring it out on his own. But the secret sauce, if you will, will be the spirit in him, will be the work of the spirit in him and how that all fits together and so forth. In fact, what we see in chapter eight in the very first chapters is we see the Trinity of God. Now, those of you who've been in church long enough, you know, the Trinity of God is God in three persons, God in three in one. He, now, it's not three different forms of God. That's modalism, and that's a bad theology that was, that was killed in the second, uh, second century. It is, it is actually God, three persons, three distinct persons, but yet three all tied into one, working simultaneous in synergy with one another in beautiful perfection. But yet they're three. And we're going to see all three of them and how all three of them speak into your life and into my life. 
as children of God, as, as, as being made right, being made whole, we get to see and experience the voice of God speaking into our life in a beautiful way. And I want us to discover, again, I want us to hear the voices. I don't want your identity stolen from who you are. Because who you are is who the great I am says you are. I am who I am because of the great I am said I am. And I want us to understand that and embrace who I am based on what he said. And so let's understand today who we are through the lenses of God. Let's talk about God the Son. Let's talk about God the Spirit. Let's talk about God God the Father. Let's talk about all the Trinity and how they're looking into our life and how each individual person of the Trinity speaks differently into our life. Let's talk first of all about Jesus. From the Son, what does the Son say about me? The Son says, I'm free. I'm free. Throw a party, I am free. Verse 1 says it like this. There is therefore, now he can't be any more emphatic than that. That's like underscoring, putting it in bold print, highlighting it, making it pop off the page. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful declaration that I am not under condemnation. I am set free. When Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see you filthy, dirty, rotten scoundrel. He looks at me and he says, you're not condemned. I took it for you. I went to the cross for you. I bore it for you. I took the dirt. I took the shame. I took it for you. There is now no condemnation on us. Now, we got to understand the word condemnation. That's a, that's a pretty hefty word. Because the reality is, without Jesus, we are condemned. Now, how many of you all know John 3.16? Raise your hand. Memorized as a child. Maybe the very first verse you've ever memorized. Let's say it together out loud, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I didn't even put the words up there. We all know it. We can all say it, whether I learned it in King Jimmy version and, uh, and I can't ever erase it, only begotten, you know, things like that. I, I, you know, so what, whatever it is that you, you memorized, it, you know this. But how many of y'all know John 3, 17? Mm, a few of you. Let's look at John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. But in order that the world might be saved through him, it gets even sweeter. Now, isn't that awesome? We all know verse verse 3, 16, but we all didn't know, some of y'all did know verse 17. And that God did not come to condemn us. That was not the purpose of his coming. And we now know this, and he came to set us free. But the verses don't end there. How many of y'all know verse 18? Fewer hands went up on that one. Let's look at this one. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Guys and gals, I cannot tell you enough how important John 3.16 is, but I can't tell you how much of a warning John 3.18 is to every single person that's ever walked this earth. 
And the reality is that if a person has not believed in him, they are living in a condemned state. There is nothing I can do. There's nothing I can say to sweet talk it, to sugarcoat it, to make it any, any better. I can only stand up here and herald it from the, from the top of my voice and to say this, listen, you have got to believe. If you do not believe, if you do not trust in Jesus, if Jesus is not a part of the solution of your life, then we are living with this condemned state, this condemned state on top of us. And that's not why Jesus came. We are literally, listen, Jesus didn't send us to hell. We send ourselves to hell when we refuse to believe. See, sin brings condemnation. Christ brings freedom. Christ brings freedom into our life. But when you look at this passage, let's, let's go back to chapter 8, verse 1 and verse 2. And let's not miss a very key phrase here. He says, now there, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's beautiful, right? We already said that. No condemnation. Now, the problem is, as I know our minds, we come to a positive energy vibed ver- up verse like that. And we go, there's no, no condemnation. Don't condemn me. Don't, nobody condemn me. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. But you forget the last phrase. For those, here's the key, who are in Christ Jesus. So just to make sure we don't miss this phrase, let's put Jesus on the front end. For those who are in Christ Jesus, now there is now no condemnation. If we don't put Jesus as a part of the formula, then there is condemnation, John 3, 18. And then it goes on to say, it says for, uh, uh, go on to verse 2. There it is. Okay, sorry, it's already up there. (laughs) For in the law, the spirit of life has been set free in Christ. Two times, in two verses, there's a phrase, in Christ. In Christ. You know, the last verse of the chapter 8, it'll also say, in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's this in Christ Jesus? So many times I'm afraid we ask the wrong question. We ask people, hey, hey, is Jesus in your life? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? I think the most appropriate question Are you in Christ, not is Christ in you? See, it makes the the emphasis less about you and more about Christ. And we got to make our life more about Christ and less about us. Are you in Christ? Is Christ pulsating through you because you're a part of him and you've experienced that redemptive work of Christ in your life? How, how did you get there? Did you get there because of your doing or did you get there because of what Christ did for you? I can remember as a child growing up, I was a teenager, probably not, didn't have enough money in my pocket to buy Starbucks coffee if I, if Starbucks had even been around at that time. And I remember my uncle, uh, bought breakfast passes with the President of the United States. And I was able to go within a handshake of the president, Gerald Ford, and to be able to see him and to get access to him. I mean, as a kid, I didn't fully appreciate it like I should have, but I I can still remember the importance of it and how we had to go through secret service. And I can remember seeing him. I can remember getting close to him. I can remember that whole aura. I can remember that whole experience even to this day. And I think about that when I think of how did I a little teenager with not enough money to buy a latte get access to the president. It was because I had a, a successful 
business property developer uncle who had done pretty good in life, who was able to get access to the president. And when he got access to the president, he invited me, a little teenager, to come along with him and to get close to the president. How did I get close to the president? Was it because I had money? Because I had access? No. It was because my my uncle did. And he got me access to the president. How do I get access to the father? I can't go in there with dirty hands and dirty feet and a dirty life. I get access because I have a savior who paid a price for me to get access to the father. And we cannot forget that. I am set free only because Jesus has set me free. And if the son has set you free, you are free indeed. Don't ever go back to slavery if you've been set free. Live as a free person from the spirit, from the, we talked about from the son. What does he say? He says, I am free, live free. What does the spirit say? The spirit says, I'm under new management. So live under the new management. I can remember a restaurant in town and it was about 10 years ago. Somebody asked me in the last service, uh, what's, what restaurant it was. And so I'll tell you if you want to come ask me afterwards, but uh, I can remember this restaurant and got closed. It was closed down by the, uh, by the health organization because there was some salmonella poisoning that happened in the restaurant. And uh, it was made the newspapers and everything like that. And it was a local restaurant. And they shut the doors and they had signs on the outside. I even drove by and read the signs myself. It's kind of like, ooh, I, I hear of these things happening. You know, what, what happened? One week later, the doors are back open. They changed the name. Same people on the inside, same managers, same restaurant, same cuisine, same everything. But they had a new sign. They had a new name. The same place, new name. Same management, new name. My friends, listen to this. God has not just given you a new name. He's given you new management. He's given you a new leader, a new voice to listen to, a new, a new voice to hearken to, a new voice to say yes to. And if we don't get this right, if we don't hear that voice, if we don't obey that voice, we're missing something. Verse 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ. Now, it's interesting he says the Spirit of Christ. I thought we were talking about the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is the beauty of the Trinity. You'll find in chapter 9... It'll talk about the Spirit of God. In chapter 8, it talks about the Holy Spirit. In chapter 8, it talks about the Spirit of Christ. Why he mentions three different titles to the Spirit. Because the Trinity is one. Operating in one. The Spirit of Christ is the same as the Holy Spirit. It's the same as the, the, the Spirit of the Father. They are one. They are not, they are not separate. They are, they are, they are one. So he says, if you d- does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's a danger sign. That's a red flag. That's something I gotta, I gotta pay attention to something. I'm missing something. So when you go to, and you, and you think about the, the emphasis of the Spirit in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, I can't overemphasize this enough. In the first five chapters of Romans, he mentions the Spirit, Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, mentions it four times. Now that's significant enough to say that nearly every chapter in Romans, in the first five chapters, mentions Spirit, okay? But when you come to chapter 8, he mentions the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, no less than 21 times. It is the theme. He is the leading character in the story. And just take a moment with me and contrast chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 7, first person pronouns used 47 times. I, me, my. 
In chapter 8, it's used one time in verse 4. In chapter 7, the Holy Spirit is referenced one time. In chapter 8, it's referenced 21 times. What's the point? Paul had an eye problem in chapter 7. And if you were here last week, you know what chapter 7 is about. I can't do it. I want to do it. I can't do it. Everything I want to do, I don't do. It was all about him. It was all about him trying to get to him, him being perfect and him achieving. And look at his accomplishments. And I, 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 and every single time he fell flat on his face. But when the spirit becomes a part of the scene, when the spirit becomes a part of the equation, I'm under new management. It's not me ratifying me or me fixing me. It's not me going to the doctor and getting a pill to fix me. It's not me thinking new thoughts only. It's me entering into this relationship with the God of the universe and he becomes the manager of my life. And 10 times in eight verses, he will talk about the spirit living with us, dwelling with us, walking with us. And then he'll talk about the flesh, the flesh and how it brings death and how it brings it's hostile to God and how you cannot please God and how it doesn't belong to God. He's going to compare and contrast. If you want a further Bible study this week, you just take these next few verses that we're going to read and you just compare and contrast verse 4 to verse 11. All the times it talks about the flesh and all the times it talks about the spirit. And you just compare and contrast them. But let's read it real quickly here together. Beginning in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 4. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in it, who walk, that's that living part, that's that 24-7, 365 part, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So I should be walking according to the Spirit, not the flesh. For those who live, 24-7 part, according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live, 24-7 part, according to the, the, uh, the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit for to set the mind, notice the number of times he says mind. I don't have time to go back and unpack all of these. All the flesh is death, but he who sets his mind on the spirit is life and peace. That's the quality and quantity of life is mentioned right there. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God fights against God, goes contrary to God, pushes against God, demands of God instead of living, walking in step and harmony and peace with God. For it does not submit. No, I want to do it my way. It's my way It's my, or the highway, God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells. Now notice the number of times he mentions dwells, dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life, again, 24-7 part, because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead Second time, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life, 24-7 part, to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Say it with me. Who dwells in you. Last night even, I was thinking, how is it that I can bring it down 
to just talk about what it means to live under new management of the Spirit of God managing my life. Jot these down. I've got to focus my thoughts on God. He's got to become the first thought, the last thought, and the in-between thoughts of my life. He's got to become the dream. He's got to become the vision. He's got to become the longing. He's got to, I've got to develop an appetite inside of me for the things of God, the mind of God. How many times he said, set your mind, set your mind. He does it in Colossians. He does it in Ephesians. He does it in, in, in 1 Corinthians. He tells us again, setting your mind on Christ, having the mind of Christ. See, this is like that first thought. It's not the hands that get us in trouble. It's not the feet that take us to problems. It's not the mouth that gets us in problems. Most of our battles are won and lost between the ears, between the mind. If we can get our mind down, where does depression? Mine. Where's anger? Mine. Where's envy? Mine. All that stuff bubbles up from the heart. Yeah, but it's mine. We can either kill it there or feed it there. Kill it there or feed it there. It's up to us. And if I put God as the, the antidote in the mind, if I set my mind on him, and if I put to death, as he says in Romans eight twelve, I put to death the deeds of the body. See, it's not just me mind over mattering it. There's actually the word there, mortification, where I literally kill the flesh. I cannot just will it. I've got to kill it. I can't just overcome it. I've got to defeat it. It's got to be gone. How do you defeat the flesh? So I kept studying. In Romans 13, 14, jot it down. It won't be on the screen. It tells you this, make no provisions for the flesh in regard to its lust. When I think of provisions, I think of resources, time, space, energy, money. When I think of provisions, I think of feeding it, feeding the monster. Don't feed the monster, starve it. If it's lust that you struggle with, going to the computer at late nights when nobody else is around and you doing your own little thing on the computer screen because nobody else will leave, it's not going to affect anybody else. I promise you, you're feeding the monster. If envy is something that you're dealing with, listen, hanging out near it and around it. If coveting is your issue, if anger is your issue, you've got to starve it. If fear is your issue, you got to starve it. And many times the way you starve it is you give it the very thing it doesn't want. If fear's your issue, put yourself in a faith situation. If coveting is your issue, developing a generous heart is the solution. How do you fight a problem? With a problem. How do you fight the flu? You give it the flu. How do you fight measles? You give yourself the measles. You build up a tolerance and you're able to overcome it. How do you deal with impatience? You give yourself a situation. You don't go looking for them, they'll come to you. Don't worry. Um, They create impatience and you live in that moment. You live in the tension of the fear and then you operate in faith. Starve it, starve it, starve it. Don't go to it. A story is told of uh, David Brainerd, who's a great missionary to the Native Americans. And and back in the time of colonialism of America, 
uh, one of the bright spots was that there were missionaries who actually reached out to Native Americans. And a missionary went and reached out to a, a, a Native American tribe and actually won the chief to faith in Christ. Beautiful story and how he comes to faith in Christ. But as the missionaries do, they pioneer on and they press on into other unreached places and peoples. And one day he comes back to this village or to this, to this tribe and he meets back up with the tribal chief. And he asked him how he was doing his faith. And he said, two dogs fighting. Two dogs fighting inside of me. And of course, the missionary goes, I know what he's dealing with. He's dealing with the flesh. He's dealing with the spirit. Two dogs fighting inside of me. And so the missionary keenly asked, he said, so which one wins? And he said, the one I feed the most. Whatever it is that is causing you to fall and stumble like Paul identified in his own life, that's the part you've got to starve. You've got to realize that the spirit of God is in, inside of you Focus your thoughts and your minds on him and starve the, uh, the other to death. Number two, acknowledge God's spirit within you. Acknowledge God's spirit within you. If the spirit's not in you, we read in verse nine, you're not a child of God. So don't say, think very deeply before you say, I don't know if the spirit's in me or not. Because I tell you what, in Romans verse nine, in Romans eight and nine, it tells us that, 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 that if, that, that if the spirit's not in us, we're in trouble and, and that we're not a child of God. And in, in Romans verse, uh, Verse 16, it tells us that his spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And so if you have no conversation, if there's nothing identifying with you inside of your soul that the spirit of God is in you, then that's a red flag. Am I a child of God? Because you've got to acknowledge that he is with you 24-7, 365 days. He says it three times. I pointed him out to you. Verse 9, verse 11, and twice in verse 11, he dwells in you. He dwells in you. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he literally says, be filled with the Spirit. So when you think about the Spirit dwelling in you, don't think about a thimble full of God and you walk out the door happy and fed every week. Don't walk. Think about a warm cup of milk that you have some snooze in the sunshine with Jesus uh, once a day and, and you kind of carry on with your, your normal life. No, 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 no. Saturation. Filled with the Spirit. That's acknowledging the Spirit inside of you and living in full awareness of it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Last, number three, if we're going to let the Spirit take on that new management role in our life, trust. Trust the Spirit's voice and live. Listen. This is what I'm talking about here. It's very mystical. And it's going to take you turning off some noises and tuning out some noises and zeroing in and turning up the voice of God. Creating space and time and place in your home, in your life, in your schedule. Telling the world, no, not available. I'm going to listen to the Spirit of God in this hour, in this moment. Because in verse 6, he says he's going to lead me to life and to peace, quality and quantity. He's going to lead me in verse 13. He's going to lead me to live. I want to live. This world is not going to control me. The flesh is not going to control me. The Spirit of God is going to be the one who controls me. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. This, this chapter has, has, has awakened inside of me such an awareness of the Spirit, of such an ignorance ignorance that I'm afraid 
we've not dealt with and we've not awakened ourselves to the awareness of the Spirit of God inside of us and all that He wants to do in us, that I am convicted as your pastor. And I'm praying right now that God is going to get clarity to this and you pray with me and for me in this, that maybe in the coming year that we will do a deep dive into just that person of the Trinity of the Holy Spirit and His work and abiding in that. Because this, listen to what the Spirit of God wants to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived. Yes, sign me up. There's tons of wisdom, tons of insight, tons of things that I'm not aware of. And that's right there. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. God God, God even actually wants to let me in on this. Let me in on the secrets. Let me in on the things I don't understand. Give me insight to, to, to my life's questions. He actually has prepared them for me. If I love him and in this love relationship with him, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. What does Jesus say about me? Because I am who I am, because the great I am said I am. Well, Jesus says I'm free. The Holy Spirit says I'm under new management. God the Father, what does he say? You belong. That may not mean the others to you. But the God of the universe, the Father of all, invites you to belong and to part and be a part of something so beautiful and wonderful. And, what, and what's really awesome in this in this whole narrative of the New Testament is that there's about four to five different narratives or metaphors to use about the New Testament and about the early church and what the church is. And, and we're going to actually, next weekend in North Point, new members class, we're actually going to do a deep dive in them on Saturday morning and talking about the 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 metaphors that God uses to describe his his people and the implications that that has in our life. We call it North Point New Members and we invite those who who do not yet belong to a body or are looking for a family because one of those, and it's my favorite, it's my favorite, is that he calls us a family. He calls us a family. And if a family, how's a family? We could be a dysfunctional family or we can be a healthy family. But we're going to spend next Friday evening and next Saturday morning, and we're just going to deep dive into this. And here's here's the challenge, though. Some in this room have done church this way, church at arm's length. When what Jesus really wants is church at heart connection, at a heart level. Where we are a family and we're walking together. And listen, I promise you this as a pastor, we, we don't try to crowd your calendar. In fact, we sit in, in, in meetings and talk about, is that something that we can combine? Is that something that we can do together? Is that something that we even need to do? Is that such busyness? Is there really high value and high impact in this? And just to show you how we so believe that this is a family and we belong and God invites us to belong to his family. And this is an expression that next weekend is North Point when you become a part of God's family uh, called Grace Point. And then the next weekend, it's going to be a mother-daughter time where daughters and Mothers can come together and they can love and experience relationship with God and not religion and really distinguish that. We talked about that even earlier. 
and how mothers and daughters can pour in and create memory moments and, and that's available. Then the next weekend, there's going to be a family dedication time for those maybe parents, new babies or, or, or whatever. And they say, Hey, listen, no, we, we weren't perfect and we're not perfect, but we need as much help and you're, we're not going to have to do it alone. So on Saturday morning, we're going to pour, 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 pour into you. And then on Sunday morning, we're going to have you up on the stage and we're going to love on you, pray over you and dedicate you and commission you as parents to raise your children to love God. We're going to do it. I hope you'll be a part of it. Because the beauty of being a part of the great I am is that you're part of belonging to something beautiful, meaningful, life-changing, and it's a family. Look at verse 12. Notice eight different times he will bring in the metaphor of the family. First of all, so then brothers, that's the first time. We are debtors not to the flesh, but according to the flesh, uh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The second time he uses a metaphor for the family. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, to fall back into faithlessness. He set you free from that. You've received the Spirit of adoption. Another time he uses the family metaphor. You were adopted. God chose you to be a part of his family as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the most intimate cry to a dad. Daddy, daddy. The Spirit himself bears with us our spirits that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are with you, Jesus, through the good, the bad, and the ugly. We are a part of a family. And the beauty of this is, and there's so many of these metaphors, I could choose any of those eight and spend an hour on each one of those. That's the density of Romans 8. I'm sorry I'm putting this disclaimer on there. We can't do it justice. So let me just focus on one word, and I'll close. The word adoption. Lori and I were blessed to have three biological children that 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 were born healthy and strong and have all all that all, all good no no complications in birth or or anything like that. In fact, it was so easy. We had three oops children. Okay, now those, those adults in the room, you know what an oops child is because you might even have an oops child yourself. We had three of them. And I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because none of them were planned, and all we did was say, hey, you're thinking about, oh, I'm pregnant. <laughs> okay, well, I guess I don't even have to think about it anymore. And and then the next one comes. Uh, it was like, uh, oops, oh, I thought about it again, and there's another baby. So we know now how to have babies and just think about them, okay? So it, it saves out all the other stuff. But uh, anyway, uh, too much TMI, I know. Uh, but then we waited six years, six years. And, uh, Lord was saying, I have another one. I'm thinking, oh, I don't know. Two's got, got a pair, you know, one on one kind of thing. Oops. Here comes Josh. We, we, we can't imagine living without any of them. So they weren't oops to, uh, they were oops to us maybe, but they were not oops to God. But, you know, 
is as much as we absolutely love and we didn't plan to have any of them when we had them. God knew what he was doing. But here's here's what's something more beautiful because some in this room, you've been adopted. And you might have these lies of Satan every now and then come into your head that says, you know what? They're not loved. You're not accepted. But let me tell you this. You got parents who chose you. You might have an oops baby, but there has never been on the face of the planet an oops adoption. It's always a willful, deliberate, conscious, prayed about, let's do this. Let's give this person a forever family. I'm glad we had our biological, but I think there's something extremely powerful and beautiful about an adoption. And when you think that Jesus and all the words that he could have used to speak of are brought into his family, that he could have done, I recreated you and he does that. Now you're born again and he does that. But he intentionally chose, I adopted you. I chose you. So who am I? I am. Who I am, because the great I am said I am. I am free. I'm under new management. And I belong. Would you bow your heads with me? There's not a person in this room that God doesn't love immensely. There's not a person in this room who God isn't right now. If you said, Jesus, I want to be a child of yours. He said, as many as receive me, in John chapter 1, verse 12, to as many as receive me, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. He has chosen you. If he's pressing himself on your heart right now, saying, would you believe in me? Would you trust me? Would you give yourself to me? Step in, lean in, don't push back. We're going to do something that we've done a lot. I'm going to ask prayer partners just to move around the room and to get in position even now. And I'm going to pray. And when I through praying, you're going to stand. And if God has laid it on your heart, say, I need to become a child of God. I don't even know what to do next. Go to one of these prayer partners. Go to them. And just say, I want to be a child of God. Prayer partners, you move to your spots. I'm going to pray. Father God, we love you. God, just to be overwhelmed by your love for us, your acceptance of us, your embrace of us, your choosing us, you setting us free, it's it's overwhelming. If we think about it long enough, hard enough, deep enough. Thank you, Jesus. Do your work in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand.